Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Jeffrey West. Jeffrey is the Shannon Distinguished Professor at and former president of the Santa Fe Institute, and he is Associate Senior Fellow of Oxford University's Green Templeton College. He is a theoretical physicist whose primary interests are in fundamental questions across physics, biology, and the social sciences. His research includes metabolism, growth, aging and death, sleep, cancer, innovation, cities, companies, the accelerating pace of life, and global sustainability. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Jeffrey, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely. Looking forward to the conversation. Us as well, very much so. Yeah, are, th are there any topics that you're not interested <laughs> in? <Yeah>. <laughs> well, there are, but anyway, yeah. Can, so can we hear a little bit about your background and what brought you to working on the vast array of subjects that you work on? Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, I am a physicist, uh, both by training and by profession. Um, and I spent, uh, you know, I don't know, 30 years of my career uh, working on sort of some of the fundamental questions of physics, you know, um, quarks and gluons and um, grand unified theories and dark matter and all string theory and all these wonderful things. Um, but um, uh, beginning um, in the mid-90s, um, for various reasons, I'd, I'd always be, been interested in many other things. That was one of the things that drew me to physics. But um, uh, in the mid-90s, um, I became uh, fascinated by um, questions in biology. And it was provoked, to be honest, primarily by the what was then developing as a not just an, um, an attack on science, but particularly on physics. And uh, the, the, the kind of um, the classic comment that we heard, and I used to hear when I would visit the Department of Energy, for example, which gave, gave ma the major support for physics, for the kind of physics I did, um, um, it was, uh, you know, physics was the science of the 19th and 20th century uh, but, um, you know, the science of the 21st century was going to be biology and a corollary that was sometimes added was sort of like, you know, no need to do any more physics kind of right. <laughs> implication. <laughs> and, uh, you know, even though, you know, I mean, out of ignorance, I would react very strongly to that and out of defensiveness, no, no doubt. And, and my, um, you know, this, it was no question that biology and biomedicine were going to be major sciences of the 21st century. Um, maybe at that time it wasn't quite appreciated that uh, computer science would be, of course, uh, would dominate, begin to dominate the 21st century science. But um, I felt quite strongly that in spite of that, um, you would need some of the paradigms of physics, the ideas of physics, the conceptual framework that have been developed and have been so successful for the last uh, three or 400 years and has really given rise to the kind of uh, scientific technological society we, we live in, um, as well as our deep understanding of the world around us. And, um, and so I felt that uh, yes, biology, and now I would say computer science will dominate a lot of uh, what we do in the 21st century, but we will, still need many of the ideas, the techniques, the way of thinking that physics has provided us. So I, I said that, of course, uh, not knowing any biology. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and, um, but it did stimulate me, um, you know, sort of in the evenings as I sat around ruminating about this, as these attacks were getting more and more 
not just annoying, but they were a seriously affected funding. And I don't know if you remember, there was something called the Superconducting Super Collider, um, which was canned during the Clinton administration. And so it had a profound effect on science and certainly on physics. And, um, but I sat around and I thought, well, you know, maybe I should put, so to speak, put money where my mouth is and um, think about biology. You know, if I really believe what I said, maybe I should. Uh, you know, I mean, not that I know any, um, but it coincided with um, the fact that I was getting, I don't know, mid to late 50s, early getting into that era when it was clear that I was getting old. I mean, not old like I am now, but <laughs> that I was becoming more conscious of the aging process. And, um, and I come from a short-lived family. So it meant a lot to me that my, all the males in my family were, would be, you know, died in their late 50s and early 60s. So I had always assumed that I wouldn't live much beyond that. And so I realized, my God, you know, I have maybe, if I'm lucky, 10 more years to live. Now, why is that? And that, that, that started me thinking about aging and mortality. You know, why is it that we age and what, what's, and then became the most important question that stimulated me. What sets the scale of mortality and, and the pace of aging? That is, why is it that human beings seem to be destined to live of the order of 100 years, not 500 or 5,000 or 5 million? Um, what in the hell determines that? And so I started reading. And to my amazement, um, reading all the literature, the biological literature, medical literature, the gerontological literature, and this question is never discussed. And I realized that, and I found that astonishing, is the second most important event in an organism's life. Right. Death. Birth is presumably the most yeah. important, but death is probably the second most important. Um, and yet, you know, it's sort of this moribund area. So I thought, well, that's a good one to start thinking about. So I started thinking about that. And that, start, that process started me on a very different trajectory. Well, um, well, we're going to sit here all night until you answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it still remains a big question, although I'm happy to talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so there's just so many directions to, to go down here. I, I'm sort of curious, just as a historical matter, what was driving the animus towards physics in the 20th century? Uh, because the, the questions about the legitimacy of the enterprise actually go back further than that. I mean, yep. as early as 1910 or 15, some famous physicist, Pauli maybe, I, I don't remember which one, but was told, uh, don't go to graduate school in physics, uh, become a piano player instead, because we're, <laughs> we're essentially just elaborating on the Newtonian models that we've inherited. Yeah. You know, they're 300 years old now, and that, that was right before relativity and, and quantum mechanics took yeah. off. So w what was driving that, and do you think there's any validity to it? To which to the um, uh, to the to the um, this push to learn more about the physical universe is that what you mean? I mean, it's, it's uh, no, but w whether or not the current paradigms in physics are are the right way to approach that. Ah, ah, I see. Currently, well, you know, I, I mean, physics inherited, you know, really the the quest that goes back to the very beginnings of human beings being awed by the universe, by the stars, you know, and, and the world around us. And, um, you know, physics became, um, you know, the vehicle for understanding that. Um, but in it terms of its physicality, I mean, beginning, uh, well, of course, the Greeks certainly speculated about it and had ideas. Um, but it was really Galileo Newton, of course, that set the stage. And the, the extraordinary insight of Newton just not just in these amazing laws right. that uh, sort of govern everything, quote, but the real amazing insight that the laws that govern motion on the, on, the, on the planet, on the earth, are the same laws that govern the motion of the planets going around the sun and the moon circling the earth and so on. Right. And, and that kind of universal, universality um, was sort of a, a truly major intellectual breakthrough in uh, providing 
the beginnings of beginning to answer this question about what are the stars, what was the origin of the universe, and so on. And that sort of captured the imagination, of, of course, of, of huge numbers of people, and still does, of course. Um, but, um, of course, as science in the 20th century uh, progressed, uh, we learned about similar remarkable things um, that are, are confined, seem to be confined, as far as we know, just to the planet Earth. I mean, there presumably is life out there, but, you know, as far as we know, this is it. Right. You know, I mean, it's extremely unlikely there isn't life elsewhere, but what we can examine and what we see is here. And the extraordinary discoveries, especially in the second half of the 20th century, of course, in the genetic code and so forth, have opened up a whole new universe of way of thinking. And, um, and so, you know, understanding that part of man's place in the universe, which is much more local, rather than, you know, seeing it in terms of the heavens, and, uh, but seeing yeah. it much more locally, um, and, and, and having um, more immediate application in a certain sense. It's not that, I mean, physics has led to all the marvelous right. mechanical and electronic things. We wouldn't be doing this um, unless we had discovered the fundamental laws of physics and uh, the laws of electromagnetism, electromagnetic waves, and so on. Yeah, if 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 I could uh, go back just a little bit to what you said about life on other planets, we we've we've had several discussions around this, and um, you know I always make fun of Hollywood for jumping on the bad bang bandwagon, and but see if there if there's life on other planets, there it's it's on different gravities, it's with different atmospheres. Yeah. It's um, with different predators, with different food stocks, um, different levels of oxygen, different, uh, just everything down the line is different, different day-night cycles. And, uh, and so the odds of, if we do discover life on other planets, of it looking like us are infinitesimally remote. Um, but uh, naturally, Hollywood thinks that you just put, <laughs> put a few little distorted features on a face and then yeah. suddenly that's an alien. Right. Um, and so I, uh, we, we tend to make fun of Hollywood. So, <laughs> yes, no, I, I, of course concur with that, but that brings up an extremely interesting point. It is indeed true that, uh, clearly that the conditions wherever life has evolved elsewhere in the universe, um, the conditions almost certainly are going to be very different, even if they're in some sense Earth-like, you know, which is right. what is what's the, the you know the discovery of exoplanets are sort of focused on this idea that maybe out there there's a uh, you know there's a planet that is pretty similar to us and therefore life would have emerged. Well, of course, that's a perfectly reasonable way of looking at it, but you know, forms of life could have emerged under maybe quite different conditions. Um, and, um, you know, maybe the chemistry is different. You know, it's always been speculated that it may not be carbon-based, could be silicon-based, and so on and so forth. Um, and that's quite fascinating. Now, what I have focused on, and what I have became interested in, beginning with this quest to figure out why it is I'm going to be dead soon, yeah. <laughs> and not, there's no possibility I'm going to live for, you know, another even 50 years, um, uh, to understand why that is so has led me to spend the last uh, 15, 20 years um, uh, try, uh, um, developing uh, and trying to understand universal laws of biology. And universal here goes right into this question because the, it is understanding laws that operate across the extraordinary diversity of life that we see on this planet. Um, where it seems random and arbitrary, and we have this idea from natural selection that it was always sort of slightly chaotic and it's capricious what has ended up here. In fact, underlying all that, there are these extraordinary regularities and laws, which maybe we can talk about, and that's what has interested me. And the question that I have tried to understand is where do those laws come from? What do they represent? 
it's very much a physicist viewpoint, are there things that are sort of deeply fundamental that transcend all these different conditions that, um, that you just uh, um, articulated about different planets? And indeed, I would suggest that there are. And uh, just to jump ahead, and they are the idea that whatever life forms have emerged, uh, one of the things, the great challenges life has to face is where we have to be made of huge numbers of components. I mean, uh, whatever they are, we, uh, some analog to cells and analogs to complex molecules. Um, and they have to come together in a highly coherent fashion and all kinds of emergent phenomena come from that. And underlying all that is the concept of networks. They have to be networked together, whatever happens. And so one of the things that transcends all life forms on the planet, and I would venture to say all life forms that may or may not exist in the rest of the universe is the physics and mathematics of networks. And so um, whatever the forms of life they are, they will obey these laws. And those are the things I have been fascinated um, about uh, in the last 15, 20 years, because as I say, um, despite the extraordinary um, diversity and complexity of life that exists on the planet, um, there are some extraordinary regular laws that can be put into a mathematical form and derived from fundamental principles of network design. Well, why don't we just keep with that theme then? <laughs> T take us on that journey. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, I hope it's not. Hope. Let me tell you about these laws. Um, they're scaling laws. And what does that mean? That means, well, let me, let me give you very specifically, the most famous of these laws is something called Kleiber's law. It was discovered by a man named Max Kleiber in the early 1930s. And uh, what he did is he measured and also gathered data on the metabolic rate of many animals. And uh, the metabolic rate, just so everybody understands, is how much energy an organism needs just to stay alive. So um, it's sort of, roughly speaking, you can equate that with how much food, how much food you need to stay alive. So um, for us, as you know, it's of the order of 2,000 food calories. So how does that 2,000 food calories change as you, when you look at a mouse or you look at a whale or a kangaroo or whatever, how does that change? And is it just arbitrary and capricious because each organism, each one of those animals evolved with its own unique history. Not only that, each subsystem, each organ, each cell type, each genome in that animal has its own unique history. That's what natural selection is all about and evolution is about. And so you would have thought that, well, no, there probably isn't much relationship because, you know, they all, it's, it all depends on historical accidents and so on. Well, turns out if you actually look at the data, quite to the contrary, if you plot metabolic rate versus the size of an animal, size being, say, its weight, mass, you find an extraordinary systematic behavior. And by the way, I remind you, metabolism is probably the most complex phenomenon in the universe because what is, metabolism is taking a bunch of chemicals and making life. I mean, that's what we're doing all the time. That's, right. you know, we're, yeah. we, we use complex molecules to do that, but nevertheless, it is this extraordinary process and um, uh, and so, uh, it, despite its extraordinary complexity, it's the way it scales across all animals obeys a very simple law. And that simple law um, is very easy to explain. Roughly speaking, it says that um, if you double the size of an animal, or you look at an animal as twice the size of another, so it has approximately twice as many cells, you might have expected in the most naive way, if you forget about evolution or anything else, it would require twice as much food. Not true. Double the size, you need only 75%. So it doesn't matter if you double from two grams to four grams, 20 kilograms to 40 kilograms, or 2,000 kilograms to 4,000. Doesn't matter. Every time you double, 
you save 25%. And that is amazing. Uh, so there's this one quarter, this sort of saving of one quarter, roughly speaking, with every doubling. And, uh, and that's fascinating. But what is fascinating about it that goes beyond that, just that law, is it's true across all organisms in the biosphere. All organisms satisfy that. Or, I mean, you have to look within taxonomic groups, of course. I mean, it's, uh, you know, all, all mammals satisfy it, all birds satisfy it, all insects satisfy it, all plants satisfy it, and so on. Um, so um, that's fascinating in itself. The second critical point is it turns out anything that you can measure about an organism, about its physiology, something as mundane as the length of the aorta for us, um, for example, or about its life history, um, such as how long it lives, how long it takes to mature, how many offspring it has, satisfy similar simple laws. And they're very similar in their character. It's every time you double, you save something. And what you save, here's more, even more extraordinary, is always a simple multiple of one quarter of 25%. So it's like, it's just this amazing regularity that is hidden in the amazing diversity and complexity of the world around us when you look around, because when you look around, it looks like this messy, arbitrary conglomeration of, of, of organisms. But in fact, it's not so. And so now going to how we talked about, we introduced this, right. the work I got involved in that fascinated me was um, uh, was to try to derive those equations. Where the hell does that number, where does the one quarter come from? Where do these come from? Well, it turns out, uh, it turns out they are derivable from the mathematics and physics of the networks that of which we are made of. So you have to, so the, the kind of, um, um, I don't know, cartoon version of an organism would be that we are a bunch of networks. And when you think of yourself, uh, that's what you are. You're a circulatory system, a respiratory system, a renal system, a neural system. Your bones are a network. You can think of everything within that, that network paradigm. And it turns out if you do that and you put it into mathematics um, with some caveats, which I've been happy to discuss, um, you get uh, these laws drop out. And uh, one of the things that is characteristic of that comes out of those equations is that we're also fractals. You know, we're self-similar. <laughs> I, I was just going to ask you if, if Clogger's law is fractal. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, the fractality, this self-similar behavior that we're sort of like trees, and if you cut one piece of the tree out, it looks like a little tree. <laughs> you know, and that's who we are. I mean, all our networks sort of have this property to varying degrees. Um, but one of the crucial inputs um, that goes into this is an enormous assumption. And the assumption is that the continuous feedback that is inherent in natural selection from you know, the competition, survival of the fittest, um, is that um, we have those that have survived, those that are the fittest are the ones that have optimized something, and in particular, optimized the use of energy. So that, just to give you one example, our circulatory system, our cardiovascular system, um, our, by the way, our, in this context, doesn't just mean, you know, the three of us. <laughs> it means every, every human being that's ever existed, more than that, every mammal that has ever existed. Our cardiovascular system, which we all share, has the following property that um, it is, is, has evolved so that its topology, geometry, and its uh, organization is such that the amount of work our hearts have to do to pump blood through the system is minimized, is optimized. So that if you made any significant change to the network, if I doubled the length of the fourth branch of my arterial system, my heart would have to work harder, but if I halve the length, it would also have to work harder. But that's true of any branch of the system. So you, you have to put that into the mathematics that we're in this sort of, this local basin, this minimum, 
And out of that comes this, um, these results. And to connect it to natural selection, and I'll finish my long soliloquy, <laughs> that the, <laughs> that the, um, the minimization is such that we natural selection has worked so that the amount of energy you need to allocate for survival, maintenance, to the sort of the mundane process of living, maybe pumping blood through the circulatory system to supply oxygen and nutrients to cells, um, that is minimized so that you can maximize the amount of energy you devote to reproduction, to sex and reproduction and the uh, raising of offspring. That is Darwinian fitness. So you maximize Darwinian fitness by giving more, as much energy as possible to that process so that your genes may continue and uh, you, by minimizing the amount of energy you need just to stay alive. So that's how we evolved. And you put that into mathematics, all these scaling laws drop out. And that's you know, very satisfying. So we're, we live in a world that has, um, by some estimates, a little over 8 million different life forms. And uh, yeah. so I, I always have to think that there's just one of these life forms is not following the rules. Always. I'm sure that's true, by the way. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, I, I, I should also say something that's, that I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because we talked about Newton and physics and so on. And physical law, the laws of physics and also are basically, you know, precise. They are, there aren't exceptions. Now, of course, there are. I mean, we have to amend them. We have to amend Newton's laws of relativity and quantum mechanics. But the laws are precise. We can calculate from quantum mechanics, for example, quantum electrodynamics. We can calculate the strength of the, the magnetic moment of the electron to 12 decimal places. And you can measure it, and it's correct to 12 decimal places. I mean, that's sort of the, you know, it's fantastic. It's an extraordinary achievement. And that's sort of the, the sort of the, the, the nature and paradigm of physics. That cannot be true of biological systems and of uh, the kinds of things we're talking about and in general complex systems. Um, and so these laws are of a different nature. Even though they are quantitative and they can put into mathematical form, there are, there's much more variance around them. And uh, there are no doubt exceptions, and indeed there are. I mean, for example, um, we have applied these to plants and trees. And so you have this image, you know, of the classic tree, lots of branches. But of course, you know, you can immediately think of plants that violate that, like palm trees um, are quite different. So they've done something different. And so um, the, the um, external environment and their history has played a major role in determining that form of the of a palm tree architecture. On the other hand, the vast majority of plants have this kind of fractal-like structure, this branching fractal-like structure. And so to put it slightly differently, um, these laws, the, the law for metabolic rate and all these other scaling laws that I just intimated, um, of which there are maybe 45 or 50 of such scaling laws for every, all your physiology and your life history. Um, the, the nature of these laws is that they, um, they explain, if you like, sort of 85, 90% of what's going on, but there's this 5, 10, sometimes 20% slop. That, and what does that represent? That does represent the details of the environmental niche or the environmental niches and, and the historical contingency that has affected um, the organism. So for example, ma all mammals fall on this wonderful scaling curve. But of course, if you look, they each one deviates a little bit. And of course, for example, a, a huge deviation would be if we looked, if we started to look at the scaling of noses. Um, you know, just think of all the different, I think of an elephant you know, as a trunk. Um, so, you know, so there are these exceptions, and you're exactly right. So you have to, so there's kind of a 
a philosophical question that one has to address in terms of the kind of theories that we are developing for these kinds of systems and for the systems that have evolved by natural selections, ones that are highly complex and are adaptive, um, are, are what we call coarse-grained. We use that phrase. They're, it's a coarse-grained, low-resolution um, kind of a theory and explanation as compared to physics, which is a highly, very high-resolution um, explanation of what goes on in the universe. So uh, a while back, I wrote a wrote a paper called 10 Unanswerable Questions That Neither Science Nor Religion Can Answer. And, yeah. and it starts off with the question, the single question of why is there an exception to every rule? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Including that one. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so there's, uh, yeah. So anyway, it, it tends to dredge up lots of interesting conversation. Uh, I mean, if, if somebody, logically, if somebody figured, well, if I was going to invent the universe, I would want everything to work right every time. And yet it doesn't. So uh, no. it brings up such a fascinating question. It does. It does. And what, what, I, what I found fascinating as I got more and more into this work and shifted from sort of fundamental physics to these big questions in biology first and then questions in you know, for social organizations, cities and companies, sustainability questions, was that how extraordinary it is. There's something fascinating about the idea that we can understand the universe, the evolution of the universe, and the motion of the planets, and, you know, the development of stars and galaxies, because, they, because they're simple. I mean, that is, the equations are rather precise. Whereas the, all the stuff around us, this messy stuff around us, is complex, has developed complexity. The universe as a whole, so to speak, did not develop complexity. It only happened in local places like here, maybe a few other places on the, in the universe. Most of it is, is sim simple in the sense that you can write down analogs to Newton's laws or quantum mechanics and solve them. So, here we have this messy world, and there are all these exceptions. In quote, I'm using the language you introduced, is that mostly, which is fascinating. Yeah. So is is that mostly just because of the kinds of systems that you're dealing with? So you you noted that there were two different kinds of laws: the fine grained and the coarse grained. And and the fine grained are ones that are highly compressible, right? So you can just write out Schrodinger's equation or whatever, yes. and and it describes the the evolution of a of a system over time. Uh, whereas with a something like Kleiber's law, you've got all of these exceptions that that come into play. And I just one exception on the physical side that came into mind was Boyle's laws. It's been a long time since chemistry, but I, I would assume <laughs> that when you're when you're dealing with like the dissipation of a gas cloud, you probably have a lot more. Uh, it's it's of, of a more probabilistic nature, I would assume. So is it just oh, because? Oh sure, yes. Is it just because that biological systems are, are extraordinarily complicated that the laws necessarily are more well, constrained? I think I don't use the word complicated because, you know, um, uh, uh, an airplane, um, uh, a Boeing seven thirty seven, is extraordinarily complicated, but actually it's not complex. And the reason it's not complex, we don't say it's complex, is because up in um, you know Seattle, Everett, Washington. There's a big book that tells you exactly how everything should be put together, how everything works. And there's formulas for everything. Now, of course, they screw up every once in a while, but you know, that's but we do have in the physical world, we have highly complicated things that are not complex. In the organic natural world, uh, where you have the new phenomenon of evolutionary processes and systems having to adapt external changes and forces. So um, then you run into a diff these different kinds of laws. And, um, and those are the ones that are most challenging. And you can't wrap, you can't even imagine. Um, there's, no, there's no way, just even take metabolism. I said the scaling, I can uh, 
do it 80-90%, but if I wanted to get the accuracy that we have for the laws of physics, um, I can't, you'd have to write down, you know, not just a hundred equations, not just a thousand equations, probably not even a billion equations, actually. There would be this infinite number and that possible to do it to that precision. But the, the fascinating thing and the thing that got me so excited was there this kind of in-between stage where you can make coarse grain predictions. Um, so, for example, if you give me the size of a mammal, or any animal for that matter, I can tell you pretty much everything about it, you know, to the 80, 90% level. You know, I'll tell you its metabolism, how many offspring it will have, how long it's going to live, how long it takes to mature, what the length of its aorta is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll be right for much of that, to that degree. Now, there will be things. If I said, you know, its nose will be, I don't know, uh, two inches long, you know, in many cases, that'll be wrong. If I'd said for an elephant, I would be hopelessly wrong. And those are those exceptions. And those are because in the adaptation process, the evolutionary process, certain things, um, you know, the, the elephant took huge advantage of some um, environmental niche. And uh, that proved to be extraordinarily powerful. But overall, an elephant is a scaled-up human being, actually. <laughs> I think that, that will be news to them, I think. <laughs> Anything major you can measure about it, it's a scaled-up human being. It's amazing. And a whale is a scaled-up elephant. So now that we've, we've kind of gotten into this, now that we've kind of gotten into this question of a thing being complicated versus versus it being complex, uh, we, we might as well just go ahead and, and dive dive in with both feet. So, can we start with a definition of complexity? Like, how do you define that, and and what are some of the characteristics of complexity science? Yeah. So, complexity. You know, I'm. No one can define complexity. <laughs> there isn't a definition. No, it's been it's 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 you know people you know. So the word complexity has been around a long time, but the science of complex adaptive systems, which is what we're talking about, is extremely recent. And the Santa Fe Institute, where I'm, uh, which I'm a member, um, was the place that sort of put that on the back. That's these fantastic scientists came together in the 80s and put, and, and, um, and, and they realized that many of these big questions uh, that are out there, everything from understanding the stock market to the weather to the sustainability of the planet, was sort of within this kind of more scientific paradigm, but been swept under the rug. And they all had this characteristic that they were, quote, complex, and they were adaptive and evolving. So people struggled with, quote, definitions, and no one has. And it's one of those things like, you know, or was it Justice Potter Stewart and the dev and asking about pornography? You know, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Right. And that's pretty much what complexity is. But we can answer the second part of your question, which is what are its characteristics? And uh, we can sort of make a laundry list of those. And those are things like, first of all, they usually, a complex adaptive system has an enormous number of components. I mean, like we have, you know, 10 to the 13th, uh, you know, 10 to, uh, 10 to the 13th cells. Um, uh, a city uh, like New York has um, 15 million people, and so on. So there's huge numbers of components. Um, they are um, they interact among each other, and they interact in a non-linear fashion. Um, uh, they um, and they evolve due to external forces, the externalities. Uh, change the internal um, configurations and the dynamics. And out of that come what are called emergent behavior. Um, that is laws that like the ones I've described that aren't fundamental like Newton's laws, but are emerge from the dynamics itself. Um, and so um, and an, an analog to that is if you think of a city, for example, a city is not just the 
emergent dynamics of the interaction of the human beings, and it's not just all the roads, and it's not just all the buildings. Um, it's sort of the agglomeration of all of these and the interaction among all of these. And out of that comes this phenomenon that we call city, and it has sort of it, uh, has its own laws that are um, have emerged from the underlying social dynamics of human beings, social networks of human beings, but also you know the physical constraints because you've had to build buildings and you've had to build um, subway systems and and so on. And so um, these are emergent laws from that and. Um, typically, we don't know how these emerge. We don't. We can't derive those. Typically, um, we might be able to discover them. And one way of uh, that's been extraordinarily fruitful, in fact, in trying to understand those laws at a kind of meta level, is what I've been talking about. Is like in terms of networks to say, well, look, um, a city, for example, like an organism, is a bunch of networks. It's got roads and various transport systems and supply systems, uh, uh, water lines and gas lines and so forth, electrical lines. But it also has superimposed on that social networks. People are interacting with each other and they form uh, networks of families and networks of businesses and so on. And so um, even though you can't understand in detail how that dynamic sort of emerged, if one sees that networks play an important role and then uses the concept of network, one then can't, can start to make process. So it's, it's, it's not like physics, where you sort of quite have fundamental principles, although you might have principles of the networks, but you don't have sort of the same kind of fundamental principles, which are immutable, which is the way we think of physics. Um, these are definitely mutable, meaning that they are, they can change because uh, they are adapting and evolving. So that's very much the nature of a complex system and makes the science of complex adaptive systems so difficult. And one of the big questions that was around for a long time, less so now, when this kind of work started to emerge, was is there, can you imagine that there is a fundamental theory of complex adaptive systems in the same way that, for example, we have fundamental theories of physics that I've talked about, but also fundamental uh, theories of thermodynamics, like concepts of entropy. Can we have entropy? And the, and the thing that makes that so difficult, by the way, is that typically of complex systems, they involve not just the physicality of systems, that is the things that I've talked about uh, that are to do with energy, metabolism, analogs to that. But equally importantly, they're exchanging information. This is what we're doing. Um, information exchange. And uh, those two things, uh, the, the, the information exchange and the use and transformation of energy have to be integrated into one thing. Or every complex system has that. We are that way. We're informational systems, we're also just, uh, you know, physical systems transporting energy and resources, but there's also a tension between them, uh, between those two, and that makes it extremely difficult. So I wandered off, but that's sort of the nature of what a complex adaptive <laughs> system is, and makes it so difficult to define and so difficult to analyze. What is the tension between the information and the energy? Well, I, I think a city has it uh, is, is a better example than most of biology. Um, but um, it, it's that, you know, you have the infrastructure, you need an infrastructure to, to support, um, you know, support our lives, our just material well-being. Um, but we also have, um, you know, we're, we're doing what we're doing. I mean, we... Uh, we have this um, uh, needs and wants that uh, often can't be met by the material, um, the material physical side. And um, I would say that um, you know an extreme example is uh, occurs, of course, in, um, in in the political sphere. In fact, I would say that um, 
uh, you know, this, this desire for wanting more, uh, which is sort of you know, more materially, is related to information exchange between people and competition between people that gets expressed in terms of cultural phenomena and in terms of um, uh, um, the, the kinds of political phenomena that, um, which is information exchange and uh, ideas and so on. And, and keeping those in sync is extraordinarily difficult so, for so, in, in social systems. So when you're, um, you're talking about uh, complex adaptive systems, um, naturally it would seem that there would be a point of having too much governance and too little governance. And so how do you arrive at a point where you have optimal governance ah. to, to mesh with a complex adaptive system? Yes, that's a really uh, interesting question, challenging question. And <laughs> as far as I know, has never been answered. And so it's very interesting, it's very timely that you brought this up because funnily enough, um, a few of us at the Center Institute started asking exactly that question and asking the question about what is optimum governance. And I will say it was stimulated originally by the usual frustration that we all have that uh, everything's getting more and more bureaucratic. Right. You know, every organization we deal with um, just seems to be full of bureaucracy, too many administrators doing too few things, making life difficult, too many laws, too many constraints, et cetera, et cetera. And you start thinking like that and you vote for Donald Trump. Um, and so, uh, you know, it becomes, uh, <laughs> so, um, so uh, the question is, why is that? And in fact, one of the things um, that uh, I began to realize is, and it goes along with the whole scaling phenomenon. So we all complain, and I certainly complain like everybody else, that federal agencies are too bureaucratic, and even, even the Santa Fe Institute, which is quite small, is getting too bureaucratic. And, uh, you know, I was in a national lab for many years. God almighty, that was so bureaucratic. But how do I know it's too bureaucratic? Maybe it's got the right amount of bureaucracy. Maybe that's what you need. In other words, if you know the functionality of the system and you know what it has to deliver, this is, this is what it has to do, maybe this is what you need. Maybe this is the kind of um, the size of a bureaucracy that you need to have. So we started thinking about that. Is there, is there some framework we can develop um, to look at um, uh, questions of bureaucracy in general, including, by the way, as an extension of that, the legal system, because that's part of the governance and constraints, of course. So we, we've spent a lot of time in the last year trying to gather data, actually, on this. That is, you know, the number of administrators in various kinds of organizations as a function of size and so forth, and seeing, again, looking at how they scale, and asking questions about, can we understand where those kind of scaling laws come from? Because one of the things we did discover was that bureaucracy and administration satisfies very simple scaling laws. Actually, it's quite predictable. And so that suggests that maybe underlying this, there is a dynamic and the system is in some ways has been, has, has moved towards optimization. Now, that's that really terrifying thought. <laughs> yeah, what a terrible thought. Exactly. What a terrible thought. And the question is, no, but this then it brings up a very a very challenging question. Optimized for what? Right. That's the deep question. What is it that we're trying to optimize? And I didn't talk about that, and I talked about that briefly in for organisms, for example. It is in fact to minimize energy. So that, you know, the energy, the energy you need to, to, to live um, so that you can devote more energy to projecting your genes into the future by having offspring and raising them. And that's a very well-defined principle and nature seems to work that way. The question is, for example, in a city, what is being optimized? Um, you know, is it just so that we can get from A to B as quickly as possible? 
uh, on the one hand, and at the same time, we're all trying to get more. You know, everyone wants more stuff, which seems to be the case. Otherwise, the system apparently would collapse. Um, we need, you know, I mean, I have here, an iPhone, look, it's falling apart, an iPhone 6. Oh, wow. I have in this house, my, my children are here. They are, you know, they have, I don't know, I guess there's iPhones 11s and 12, I don't know what there are, but, you know, I'm already finding, of course, things don't work on this, as you know. Right. But it's perfect, but this does everything that any human being on this planet, as far as I can tell, would need. Does, you don't need anything more than this. I mean, come on. And yet, we want more. And so that maybe that's a principle. So maybe something, so what is it that we're trying to optimize in terms of our uh, um, administration and bureaucracy? And one of the things that we're trying to get some clues from is looking at cells natural phenomenon, which have clearly optimized in some way because cells have uh, genes that uh, are controlled, you know, they control the system. And so how did those evolve and how many do they need? And we know that, we know the, the number of genes and the roles they play. And can we learn from that what is an optimal system? And, uh, and so that's, it, this is very much in an incipient stage. But the, the, the question you asked, I think, um, you know, it came out of sort of some whimsical um, kind of sitting around bullshitting and complaining <laughs> sessions. <laughs> and it developed into something serious. And we just put in a big proposal to the NSF, which probably won't get funded. But more uh, <laughs> this work. I hope the I hope the irony won't be lost on them. Yeah, exactly. No, in fact, my original the original thing had in it uh, some sentences about the bureaucracy of the National Science Foundation <laughs> and how you know it's only increased exponentially in the last few years and so on. My collaborators uh, <laughs> convinced me to take those things out. So, we did. but but um, uh, no, it's a fascinating question. I think, and but, but I became. I became more and more to realize that uh, this function of emergent constraints um, is a major problem of the 21st century. Um, you know, the amount of time and energy, resources and money that go into it um, is fantastic. I mean, we, gosh, if you saw some of the data we have on universities, for example, um, it's extraordinary. So, but maybe that's what you need, as I say. So we need to understand that. And so yeah. it's, a, it's a great question. Yeah, one of, one of the topics we've uh, debated a few times is that um, we're putting more and more power in the hands of individuals. Yeah. And the, the potential for people to become dangerous with all this, this power at their, at their fingertips um, is getting greater and greater. So... <clears throat> To, to regulate the potential for those people to do something, uh, go awry, to just go off the deep end and, and push the wrong button on purpose, is um, uh, it's forcing us to become, um, the, the governing part to become more and more intrusive in our lives, uh, yeah. to detect problems at the earliest possible stage of something going wrong. Um, and it's, it seems like we're, uh, we're resisting that much intrusion in our lives. And so it seems like that's a, a no-win yeah. situation. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you because, uh, um, you know, on the one hand, we need these regulatory constraints. Um, just like, as I said, cells need regulatory genes. It's yeah. not sort of willy-nilly. And we need that. And what has emerged in the last uh, few decades is this emergence of very powerful individuals outside of governance, um, you know, outside of government anyway. Um, and, um, you know, some of them are quite benign, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not impossible that, uh, you know, this could lead to some very bad things. And of course, it's sort of related to and a cousin of the rise in inequality. The, uh, not that inequality has always been there, 
but the increase in inequality and the um, extraordinary range now between the wealth of individuals uh, and the wealth and power of certain individuals versus those of many others. And um, it's very hard to see how to reverse that. And, um, you know, the, the, none of us want sort of totalitarian authoritarian rule to step in and uh, regulate that. And yet, um, you know, to its own devices, this could of itself bring the system down. Um, and if, if, even if not of itself in the image that you present, depressing the wrong button willfully, but in creating more and more social unrest and uh, which we have just seen the smallest tip of an iceberg. And uh, that concerns me more than anything else, frankly, uh, because one of the things that I think is so astonishing that's happened, I was going to say in the last 10, 20 years, but it's happened throughout my lifetime is that I have seen continuously. So I'm 80 years old now. And so I've been around a long time and the world has in many ways changed dramatically. Um, but one of the things that is extraordinary is that by the usual metrics, which are mostly material, um, the quality and standard of living of people across the globe, and in particular within the United States, has monotonically been increasing. I mean, just every year gets, now there's, it plateaus here and there, and it's, they claim it's plateauing for a while now. But, you know, overall, it's just been increasing. So you would think people would be getting concomitantly more and more satisfied, happier and happier, and so on, you know. But it isn't the case, of course. And that's, maybe it's mysterious, but it says that, of course, happiness and quality of life maybe are not just associated with material things. But what is most surprising to me is that in the last... 10, 20 years, it's created a sense of social unrest. Now, it hasn't evolved into sort of revolutionary people in the streets. There's been a little bit of that, but it has evolved into, you know, um, a bizarre phenomenon of um, supporting um, what appears to be the beginnings of a kind of authoritarian rule, a rejection of science, a rejection of truth, a redefinition of what we mean by truth, a weird sense of um, what media is and so on. All of these things are sort of coming together. And, and this is very, this, this phenomenon, I think, took most of us by surprise and it certainly took me by surprise. And this question that you brought up, I, I don't think is soluble. This one between um, regulatory control to stop things like that, some kind of intervention versus the feeling that, you know, having a completely open, free system, um, sort of the, the analog to open markets and free enterprise, free expression, on the one hand, does, has led to this in some curious, weird way. And just, one, one last thing is, I was born at the beginning of the Second World War, in Europe, that is, and after the war, you know, Britain was a socialist country and a socialist government. So I grew up, um, you know, with the beginnings of the national health system. And I grew up and only, and I did not know, I did not even realize until I came to America that I just assumed in my naivete and I went to a major university and you think I would have learned that elsewhere in the world, medical care isn't free that um, education isn't always free, that police don't carry, police carry guns so in some place. You know, all these things I took for granted in a state that had, you know, that there was more, from a, the American viewpoint, much more control because railways were nationalized when I grew up, steel was nationalized and so on. It was nationalized industries. And, you know, you, you sort of grow up thinking that what's around you when you're 10, 15 years old is sort of natural and is what the whole world is like. And it takes a while, it takes to your, in your, 
late teens and 20s to realize that that ain't so, there are alternatives. So I've been under that and, and I yearn sometimes for that kind of simplicity of life that existed under that, where there was a, whoops, sorry, where there was a kind of, um, um, you know, a strong state that was benevolent. That no longer exists. And it doesn't exist anywhere in the world except one one country, and that's Singapore. Okay. Which has a benevolent, which has done something amazing. It's had a benevolent dictatorship. The only dictator that actually wanted to do good for the people. There's never been one as far as I know. Yeah, he, he's a very interesting political figure and really, yeah, really throws a wrench into, into a lot of the analyses. Yeah, anyway, sorry, that's a side <laughs> comment. <That's not> <laughs> no, no, anyway, I'm sorry, I've rambled on with this stuff. <laughs> but your question, no, but it's a, it's a fundamental question as we move into the 20, more and more into the 21st century, these questions. So we are coming up on the hour and I, I wanted to hopefully counteract some of the pessimism there by asking you what, <laughs> ma what makes you hopeful for the future? Well, um, I, I am mixed, of course. I'm, um, you know, my science, unfortunately, tells me that things don't look so good long term. We didn't talk about the work that I've done on sustainable growth and sustainability and um, what, uh, you know, the that led me to recognize that the very essence of our success, um, you know, the kind of free market system and the, um, the, the, the extraordinary phenomenon of human beings in communities with their positive feedback mechanisms and social networks, producing new ideas, innovating, that very phenomenon which has led to this also is going to lead to our debacle that will lead to our because we can't sustain one second i know i will, I will contract that but it, it worked because it it's it's the big question is how do you sustain exponential or faster than exponential growth and um and the way we've done it is by innovating but one of the things that you learn is yes you can innovate yourself out of problems but you have to do it faster and faster. And the question is, can we keep up with that? And one of the malaise of our time is that most people are beginning to feel left behind. Like even silly old me with my iPhone 6, <laughs> I'm feeling left behind compared to my young colleagues. That's a trivial example, obviously. But many people are, and they look for simplistic um, solutions. Now, having said that, um, we do, we've, we've innovated ourselves out of the big, the big quest, the big problems. I mean, we've, whether, you know, it began with the Industrial Revolution um, and the discovery of the, and exploitation of fossil fuel and the evolution of capitalism and entrepreneurship, which have led to this extraordinary quality and standard of life many of us are privileged to have. And that's been fantastic. Um, but so, um, but we've had to innovate in order to keep that going. And um, we've had to innovate faster and faster. And one of the funny things that's happened in the last 10 or 20 years is that the word innovation has become synonymous with technological change and technological innovation. And it is the realization of that, that that identity has led me to feeling that we could be optimistic because we need to separate innovation from technology. That yes, there is this technology juggernaut going ahead. And that's great. But so, there's so, also- So there's so, a slight, slight ray of hope. It's what you're saying? <laughs> there is a slight ray of hope because innovation is something much more than that. Um, it's, it's cultural innovation, right. social change. And, um, you know, I mean, I was actually pessimistic about that until Donald Trump came along. And believe it or not, the phenomenon of Mr. Trump has actually given me a ray of hope 
because I always thought, yes, we could have this cultural change, but it's going to take, you know, cultural changes take tens of years, if not longer. It takes, you know, it took for a long time just to get people to stop smoking everywhere or to use seatbelts. You know, it, it, these are trivial things on the scale of what we're talking about. So to make significant changes in the way we think about each other and feel about community um, is going to take something so much longer than the time we have left to deal with the problems. And then came Donald Trump, <laughs> who in the matter of one year or less, got us from throwing out, got us throwing out all the lessons we learned from the enlightenment, all of science, all of truth, all of love and connectivity and supporting each other's the teachings of Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad all got sort of thrown out as far as I can tell, not love thy neighbor as thyself any longer. And so that all happened so fantastically quickly. There was this extraordinary change so that none of us recognized the Republican party as to what it was even 10 years ago. Um, so, um, I realized, my God, if that can happen in one to two years, maybe the opposite can happen in a short period of time. That we can have a major change. I'm really speculating here. This is not yeah. science. This is me just sort of truly speculating about the possibility that we could have, I hate to use the phrase, a kind of anti-Trump. And this is not necessarily politics. This is just someone that brings a sense of belonging, a sense of community, a sense of caring, uh, and for want of a better word, a sense of love and giving. And, um, and it goes, uh, a little bit of this goes to your question earlier about individuals getting richer and richer and richer and more and more powerful. And it could be that one of those presses the right button. Not, you know, you talk about pressing the button, but it could be a good button that they press, just like Trump pressed what I consider to be a somewhat deleterious button. But we need someone to press the other button that sets us, resets us on a scale. And that is a major paradigm shift and a major innovation. Um, so it's pretty flaky and pretty hokey, but that does give me does give me hope because I want human beings. You know, I don't worry for the future of human beings, frankly. I worry about the future of socioeconomic human beings that we've developed now. I, I think it is so fantastic what we have done as human. Once we learned language, we developed ideas, we communicated, we built cities, and so on. It is extraordinary. And I don't want that to be lost. I don't want us to go back to being hunter-gatherers. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Donald Trump has made America hopeful again. <laughs> there you are. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. This has been a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation. We really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for the stimulating questions and comments. Yeah, well, thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.